Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. 
With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Thank you guys all very much for being here. Uh, my name is Podcast and rather than about talking about talking about my book, I figured a lot more. probably don't do about my My guest tonight is my very, very dear friend and brilliant writer, Seth Beck. Oh, and one other quick note, and in case you didn't notice, Sarah was pregnant, so she might have to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the conversation, so we'll work as if that happens. I asked him if we should have, like, a hand signal. <laughs> I was like, he said you can just get up and go, but take your mic off. <laughs> well, welcome back to The Unmistakable Creator for the third time. Thanks, this is the third one. This is the third one, and for damn good reason. The last two were amazing, so I expect nothing less this time. No pressure. <laughs> well, given that you're about to be uh, a mom again for the second time, I figured uh, I wanted to start with a question that I haven't asked you before, and that is, what birth order were you, and what impact has your birth order had on the choices that you've made with your life, your career, and everything else you've done, and on the kind of parenting you've done? I'm the second of four. And then I have two stepbrothers, so there's six of us. But I'm definitely, I definitely act like an oldest child. I'm pretty bossy. <laughs> I organize a lot of things and a lot of people. Which I think is true for my career as well. I do a lot of organizing groups of people and bringing them together and telling them, I think, very nicely and persuasively what to do. <laughs> like, it's usually an invitation, not a command. I learned that, for sure, being a middle child. Um, yeah. Well, you come from a really big family. So I wonder what are the lessons uh, in social dynamics and relationships that you learn from being in such a big family. I'm only curious that because I don't come from a family with tons of siblings, but I have one, so I've always wondered what that would be like. This is, this is really interesting because I've been thinking actually about this because I am about to give, I don't even know what verb to use, give, have, make, birth. Like what do you, what is it that I'm about to do? But I've been thinking about it because I've been thinking about my mom giving birth to me and what that must have been like. And how she did having a fourth child with three children around and like getting to the hospital. All of these things are in my mind right now. So 
I mean, also, pregnancy brain, remind me of the question. <laughs> uh, what have you learned about relationships and social dynamics from being in such a big family? We grew up in an 850-square-foot house in Palo Alto. There's three bedrooms, one bathroom, um, four kids, three girls, one boy, and we shared rooms, and it changed every 18 months. So at any given point, my brother was you know, eight and then 10, so he was a boy, and the only boy, so needed a little more privacy because it got a little weird to have his 12-year-old sister sharing a room with him, so he got his own room. But my younger sister's dresser was in that room, but her bed was in our room. And then at one point, my parents lived in the garage so that we could have more space. So there is just a lot of, I'm not sure your mic is working, by the way. Well, okay. So they're interpreting the questions for my answers. Uh, there was a lot of, of like just negotiation of space, and then also my therapist would probably say like issues of boundaries, um, <laughs> like figuring out what like whose space was whose and and what it meant to like have your own stuff in your own space. And my poor sister, so my cousins, there's three cousins who are stepwise two years older, and then we're all about two and a half years apart. So my poor sister got the seventh in a line of hand-me-downs, and my poor brother got girl swimsuits. So, like, there's just a, there there was a lot. I think it's made me a lot more tolerant um, or, I don't, tolerance probably not the right word, but, like, flexible about someone shows up and they're wearing, you know, 70s culottes that have been patched over four times. And I'm like, yeah, I get you. Like, I've been there. What impact has it had on the kind of parent that uh, you've been, do you think? I really like the idea that once you have more than one kid, you don't actually have time to get to the kid very quickly. So it's really taught me a lot about my first kid. If he cries, I don't need to sprint to the crib and go get him. He's going to be okay. Like fourth children everywhere are okay. (laughs) Right? And they probably were crying for 10 minutes before you got them. Um, In fact, four children are probably better sleepers than everyone else because they cried and they're like, no one's getting me, so I might as well just go back to sleep. Yeah, I had an old boss who once said, he said, once you get to the second one and they start like hitting their heads and all this stuff, it's like, yeah, this has all happened before. This will be fine. They'll be fine, like, you know, and and I think there's like a bit of grace where you can say, I I, I hear you, I'm coming. Um, Mama's going to finish pooping. Like, she's going (laughs) to do, she's going to do the stuff she's got to do. I'm also going to wash my hands and pull up my pants, it'll be a minute. (laughs) (laughs) What has the experience been like for your son? Uh, And is he aware of what's happening? And what has his reaction to it been? In terms of knowing that that I'm That another kid is coming, yeah. I think... Mostly he doesn't like that my lap is disappearing. Um, and I get some really aggressive like sits on where he comes over and he sits on me. Uh, but it's interesting. He's two years and two... How old is he? Three months? Two and a quarter. It's two and a quarter. And... Um, There's limitations of what, he's learning language so rapidly, but I don't think language is an indicator of necessarily what he knows or understands. So he may not be able to communicate back to me 
that he understands, mm. but I think he understands more than he's saying. So we talk about the baby in my belly, and sometimes he yanks his shirt up and he goes, no, my baby, and then he puffs his belly out and he sticks it out. Um, and then we've tried to get him to feel the kicks, but he's not very, he's like, mm. you know. yeah. Well, I, I, I'm curious because I know that when my sister showed up, I got to experience a dose of serious jealousy, so I kind of wonder what this is like. I remember my... Uh Everybody was coming to visit my sister. They were bringing gifts. And this one family friend actually brought me cookies. And I was like, I don't want these stupid biscuits. I want a real gift. <laughs> it was like an unappreciative little shit, basically. Yeah. Um, Take it back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, last time you and I spoke, this is something that I really wanted to ask you about. I remember in our previous conversation, you mentioned uh, that you were teaching your son baby sign language mm-hmm. and how fast he was learning, and now he's actually talking. Yeah. Uh, so as somebody who is as eloquent as you are with words, what has been the experience of teaching your son to speak been like at, from the perspective of a writer? And what has it been like in general? I just can't help but wonder. I think baby sign language is so interesting because there comes a moment in the development of kids, but also every kid is different, and me having one child does not make me an expert on child development. Like, let's just also put that out there as a disclaimer. Um, but when you like, when you're growing as a human, a little one, uh, physically you're gaining motor skills and muscle skills, and the art of making words with your mouth and like it, taking in information and then bringing it back out is actually harder. And I, I imagine that a lot of the frustration of being a two-year-old comes from not being able to say what you want. Like the maddeningness of being in that 18-month to 24-month period where you're like, that's what I want. I don't know how to say it. I don't even have the words for it. So I'm just going to sit here and holler at you. And like humans, adults have a hard enough time communicating as it is. Like I'll say one thing, you'll think it means another. We show up at the wrong time at the wrong building. And it's like we're ostensibly competent adults. And (laughs) in theory. And so we started teaching him baby sign language right around that motor skill development time when he's learning a lot, like starting to walk, starting to toddle. Um, and it, he learned maybe 20 or 30 different signs, like um, more and um, water. Poop is a great sign. Um, I enjoy that. <laughs> um, diaper, like the, holding the tabs of a diaper. And just whenever we explain things to him, we would use those signs at the same time. So we'd say, oh, do you need another diaper? Like, do you have to go poop? And he was able to say about six weeks to eight weeks later, he would use those signs at the same time. Although you had to look carefully because, like, they don't, he didn't take three fingers for the water sign and then raise it to his mouth in perfect form. It was more like, I want some, I want some water with, like, a very soft hand. Um, but they say... You know, you can read too many parenting books, but they say that that helps him learn language faster. And now that our son is two, uh, a little over two, he's, I mean, he marched out to the living room the other day and said, Mama, go clean up. (laughs) 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 It's just like, all righty. Or I get him in the morning and and I go into his room and he's like, "Mm, not Mama, Dada. And I'm just like, okay. But he's got a lot of language and it is astonishing to see how we spoke not that long ago mm. and 
now he's talking a ton. And this is different, though, for every kid, because depending on how they grow and what they learn and what they pick up, I have, I have a really good friend who, uh, one of my husband's best friend, who didn't start talking until he was like three and a half and then just like had composed full sentences. And he was more of a child that was just like watching the world and absorbing things and was like, ah, none of you have anything interesting to say, so I'll just wait. And then finally came out and started talking. So, you know. So last time I asked you uh, what has surprised you, and I'm curious now, in the last, since we've last talked, what else has been surprising about watching uh, your son go? What have been the unexpected things you've seen? There's a quote attributed to Montessori philosophy that talks about everybody assumes that children need adults, right? Like, it's hard for children to exist without an adult. But there's a quote in there that talks about how much adults need children. And I think it's one of the great sorrows of our modern culture that we isolate ourselves and don't spend time with children or that we treat them like they're nuisances or um, just items to be taken care of. They have more to teach us about the world than we often give them credit for. And most of my frustration in being a parent comes from my own shit. I want to get somewhere by 8.30 in the morning. Who fucking cares? Sorry. Who cares? Like what time it is, right? And and he, if you just give him four more minutes, I've, I've said, let's get our pants on, let's get our underwear on, let's get our pants on, let's um, get our shoes on. And he's like, okay, he'll do it. But he doesn't want to do it in seven minutes. It might be ten. I'm the one who brings the aggression or the anger or the attachment into the situation. So I... I, I mean, I could go on and on about this a lot. I started a company slightly about it, which allows me to talk about it a lot. Um, I, I'm surprised how much I love my child. I didn't, I don't take that for granted either. I, I, don't, I don't know if, how do I say this in a, in, I don't know if everyone is as easily lovable. Like, I think you can love everyone, but I think some people are more challenging to love. Like, we all have siblings and parents and uh, friends that, like, we love, but maybe it's not, it's like, it's more work to do. And I think children are the same. You have no idea who you're going to get. Like, it's just, it is the ultimate gamble in genetics. And you can love them, but I'm surprised how much I really like this kid. (laughs) I hope that comes out the way. I'll have to listen back and see if it comes out the way that I mean it. Well, so I think for me this is such an interesting segue into a question uh, about something I think any of us who think about becoming parents think about. Like, I every time I think about the idea of a parent and I see things that my parents have done, I was like, I'm definitely not going to do that because you guys fucked me up because of you did that. And I wondered, are there things from your own childhood and things your own parents did that you think about in your own experience as a parent where you're like, wait a minute, I'm repeating exactly what I said I wouldn't do? Or are there things you're also saying, wow, I'm actually not doing that? Hmm. I mean, I think this is like the essence of why I go to therapy. (laughs) Right? Like... My husband and I both go to therapy every week separately, and all of it is like, how was I raised? What does it mean? What are my patterns? Because we're all conditioned at age four, six, or seven. All these things are in there. So 
I think, I think one thing I really like is I have a lot more forgiveness for other parents. I think you're just doing the best you can. I think my 28-year-old self was an asshole. Um, and my 38-year-old self is going to be a lot nicer. But like when I was, I think it's so easy to not have children and to be high and mighty and be like, I'd never give my kid an iPad in a restaurant. That, I would never do that. And then you get into a job that is 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. You never get a single break. Your child has had the flu for five days in a row. This is the first time you all have eaten. You're out at a restaurant and you would like a minute? to think. And you're like, here's that iPad. <laughs> you just slide it on over. You're like, I don't care what. Play with every button. Call the cops. Do, <laughs> do what you want to do. Um, and I think it's just when you, like, we get these glimpses into other people's lives. It's like social media. We get these glimpses into other people's lives because we see a second of them as a parent. And then we make all of these judgments. And we have no idea. We have no idea what they're going through, how little they slept, how little help they're getting, um, what mean parents they have or don't have, who died recently. Like, there's just so much contextual information that, like, if I see a parent giving a kid something, I'm like, the chocolate might not help you later with sleep, but you do you. Like, let me know if I can help. <laughs> okay, so you're about to be a parent for a second time. Um, what have you learned from the first time that you plan to apply going forward, and how do you balance that with knowing that this is a completely new kid who has to be their own person in the world? I think I'm afraid I'm going to be arrogant. Like, I'm gonna be like, I got this. This will be easy, I know what I'm doing. Um, I, I do wanna, I do really believe in giving them as much space as possible to be themselves. And I think it's my job to try to witness that. Um, it's really attempting to try to apply, uh, here's what I would like for you, to a child or any person. I, my family members, right, my siblings, I'm like, why don't you just get this job, you know? <laughs> um, I'm curious who it's gonna be. I don't know, I'm, this is, we're at the liminal moment right now where in two-ish months, I don't know if, um, if I'm gonna have a sleeper, a colicky baby. Like, Leo came, my first kid, Leo came out and by five weeks was sleeping in five-hour stretches, you know? I felt like a sane human being, because I got some sleep. And I don't know if, I'm, if we're gonna get one that just needs, there's like, somebody has this metaphor, it's like barnacle or barracuda. I don't really understand it, but it's like, one's like clingy and is on the boob every hour, and one of them's like, I'm good, I'm gonna take a four hour nap. Just depending on what kind of person I have that arrives in our family. I don't know, I'm a little nervous about the next 12 months, to be honest. Uh, you mentioned Montessori earlier, which, uh, knowing what you know about me, there's no way I was going to let that go. Um, have you thought about how you're going to educate your kids? Knowing what you do, uh, given all the information that you've been exposed to based on your career, uh, has it informed the way you think about educating your kids? And if so, how? Yeah. This is a big rabbit hole, especially if you live in a big, in an urban environment in America. There are not enough schools, and there's a lot of competition for them, and they can be insanely expensive. But also, 
education reform is like a thing at our political in our political arena. A friend of mine said parenting makes you political. And I think once you start to get invested in children and think about like, oh, how are they going to be educated? It is something that consumes way more energy than I would like it to. Because I don't know if people know a lot about the New York City school system, but like there's lotteries and there's like applications and you have to apply by age three to get a five-year-old into kindergarten, which might mean they're bused across town for an hour and a half. And then you're getting them up at 5.30 so that they can leave at 6.30 to go to school and then get home at five. And oh, by the way, they cut PE. So your child will be inside of a building all day and never move. And it's just this like kind of agonizing, like why I don't want to spend time thinking about this, but I also want to do the best thing I can for my child. So do I daydream about homeschooling them somehow? Yes. I've thought about working from 3 a.m. to 7 a.m. and then spending the day with my kids. I, like We are thinking about it a lot, and I have no answers. If you were to redesign the education system uh, today, how would you change it? <laughs> you should expect this by now. We've done three interviews already, so. Mm. I actually think there are a lot of entrepreneurial ventures out there, like Acton Academy, that are doing interesting things at taking public education, which has so many holes in it and saying let's apply an entrepreneurship model to this. Um, it's still heavily lopsided in terms of class and privilege and money and all of that. Um, but if I were to design education, oh, I know what I would do. But this is really personal. This isn't like, I don't have, I don't have system reform in the back of my head right now. Um, I, I would love to see a model where a group of parents of about 10 people come together and we each take a day. So I teach school to these 10 kids on Mondays, and then my husband takes Tuesdays, or like two people take a day of those 10 people, and we each get one day, so we get four days a week to work. Um, but then I think, you know, you design an activity, and we'd each take a category, right? I, my sister, if she were in this hypothetical model, would she's a high school calculus teacher. She would teach math, and she would design math stuff. Um, and I would love to take writing, obviously, but like reading and writing. Writing, uh, and psychology. So that would be that would be kind of my ideal as clusters. But it's very this is this wanders into my very commune hippie side. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Um, I want to talk briefly uh, about social media and technology use because you've alluded to it earlier. It's something that has been on my mind a lot lately, particularly because uh, I have written quite a bit about it. It's in, in your book. This new book, so it's it's been on my mind. Two things. One, as a parent, how do you think about the role of technology in the way that you're raising your kids, and how do you think about it in our adult lives? What are the downsides? What are the upsides? What do you think we need to change in terms of the way that we're using it? It's scary how addictive it is. Like, I can see my kid, he knows how to swipe the phone open, he knows how to FaceTime people. He's two. He knows how to FaceTime people. He knows how to take photographs. Um, it's designed for two-year-olds. It's designed so that we can all do it. Um, and we, uh, in theory, have a no-screens household. <laughs> and he knows how to do all of this. Um, but I don't know. It like A, a friend of mine was doing a... Um, diversity and inclusion and racism training uh, for 
the toddler program where they are and they came in and they had all the kids come together and they had all the adults come together and at the like within 30 minutes of this four-hour workshop they were like the kids don't have a problem the adults have a problem like it's the adults that have all these patterns and systems and things and I think technology is more a problem for us it's it's related because we are welcoming them to this world uh, but I mean you have this you have written a your book, right? Like, we'll bring it up. You've written about this a tremendous amount. I think you can tell me the quote again backwards, but it's, we don't have a time management problem. We have an attention management you put your mic. We have an attention management problem. Yeah. We have an attention management problem. So it's not technology that is really the issue. It's, it's, how, it's where does our attention go? And I think I am in constant practice trying to re- acquire my own ability to pay attention. Well, I think that makes actually a, a perfect segue to talk a little bit about your creative process. Um, so this was actually made from uh, the very first conversation I had with Sarah. Some of you may have seen it, but uh, this is probably one of my favorite things that's ever come from Unmistakable Creative, and I think you'll get a kick out of this. You are this brilliant creation. If you imagine it's like a, a glowing ball of white light, like you and or and the layers of experience and the world that you live in and the voices in your head and your ego are like little clusters of black plaque that have lined this beautiful orb of glowing light. So much to the point that there's film, there's dust all over it. And so when we're trying to access this beautiful, bountiful, like inner wisdom and soul and spirituality, whatever you want to call it, we have these little lifelines that we can use to share our words and our stories. And it's talking and it's touching and it's seeing and it's writing and it's everything that we've learned about interacting and engaging. And I think it's very, very powerful to know how to tell your own story. Because if you have access to what you actually think, and who you actually are, it can be a very empowering thing. In my own life, I spend a lot of time writing. I try to write every single day. I get up in the morning and I write a couple of pages. It's like Julia Cameron in the morning pages. It's just chicken scratch. Like some mornings I'm writing like an ode to how much I want my coffee. <laughs> and like it's so bad, I'm like coffee, 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 coffee. Have I done yet? Did I get it? Like I'm just whining on the page. And other mornings it's to-do lists because I wake up in such an like, urgency and such an like, adrenaline-fueled state. I'm like, oh my god, I have so much to do. I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm going to panic. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. And so I just like, I just literally write a to-do list. And what it does is it kind of cleanses your brain. It's like just a little wash. It just gets some of that junk and that garbage off. And then I get to think a little clearer through the day. And just like in swimming, where I might have a shitty day and then an okay day and then a much better day, it's this rhythm of getting into the flow. And when it finally clicks, it's because I committed to the act of creating. And then after carving and whittling a little bit and just writing these god-awful essays that no one would want to read, including myself, I finally arrived at a moment where my voice is clearer, it's more lucid, I'm fluent. And so for me, when you see me scribbling all the time, it's just because I want to have access to my words, and the more that I scribble, the less I have to think about, should I write? When should I write? What does writing look like? Do I use a word document? Do I use a moleskin? How do I do this? Is someone thinking of me? Should I do it now? How about later? No, you shouldn't do it now. Like, I just get rid of that by doing it as much as I can. And so that I know that whenever I have a thought or something that feels like it's good or feels like I want to write about it, I have permission to write about it because it's just a habit. <laughs> How old were you uh, when that started? 
Can I also just say this is my pre-parenting self that was talking up there? <laughs> uh, you're so delightful. Um, <laughs> I, I have journals from when I was six. Yeah. I love journaling. But then I did, I know I have ripped out a bunch of pages because I really didn't ever want people to see them. So there's that little fear. But yeah, I, I have written obsessively for a long, long time. Where did that come from? Um, and then were there books that influenced continuing the habit? Uh, did parents like put journals in, your, in their hands? Because I think for me, the thing that's interesting is that I'd always had sort of this desire to do it, but it was never habitual until almost being 30 years old. I mean, it, now that when we started, we talked about how I lived in a house with so many people. I think that writing is also one of the only ways to have space to myself. It was like, go away. I'm just going to be in my bed under my covers in the top bunk journaling. So some of it was environmentally conditioned. But I think some of it was like teenage angst. <laughs> being 13, not great. Um, or 14 or 15. I really struggled in high school, and I, I, I journaled it out. I don't know if I could have contained all of those emotions from high school if I just like wallowed and, and sank in I would have I would have sunk. I would have really gone into a deep depression, I think. I think I struggled with elements and edges of depression in high school, and writing was like a salve, but... Um, Do you remember your early literary influences or early books that inspired you to want to keep writing? It just occurred to me the other day that this will tell you kind of the level of geekery um, that we're working within. That people, you know, how libraries had those summer reading programs, and you could get stickers or like you could fill out all the books that you would read. It literally, like last week, just occurred to me that people could cheat on that. <laughs> they could like write in the books that they read and go back and get credit for. It. Never crossed my mind. So when I I would re like I would go to the library and get 20 books and read them. And I loved summer reading. One of my favorite things. Uh, I'm trying to think of early literary influences. I mean, what did I read in high school? I read like Sweet Valley High and The Babysitter's Club. And I think that was like middle school. I, I mean, I, I don't know if they're, I, I would put them in the literary <laughs> category. But, um, but then I do remember, I do remember my junior year of high school, I, I felt like I had like missed something. I always had this weird feeling of missing out on something. Like I wasn't quite, um, I didn't quite understand the world. And I remember looking up a lot of college uh, English classes and seeing what books they, they had read and what the classics were. And so the summer after my junior year, I made a list of books because I felt like I needed to catch up. Like, I had to read all these books that everyone else was reading. I don't know, I'll leave that for my therapist. I don't know where that comes from. But, um, yeah. I, like, and then, um, okay. Not a Tale of Two Cities, what was it? Great Expectations did it for me. 
I don't know why. I think maybe because it was written serially, so you could read four pages at a time. And I just crawl into bed and I'd read four pages before I went to sleep. And like the, the cadence of the book was right for me. Um, and it really, I, I, it did it for me. So you've alluded to uh, depression and therapy. Uh, two things that I'm intimately familiar with. Yeah. Uh, and we talked personally. about on the second yeah, podcast. we absolutely yeah. did. And you recently even wrote a, a lengthy medium piece about this. Yeah. Uh, I want to actually do a deeper dive into that and you know, talk to you about what prompted it and the importance of having this conversation, why we need to have this as a much more transparent and open conversation as opposed to one that we hide from the world. Yeah. Well, what do you want to know? Where should we start? <laughs> well, I, I think, one, what prompted your, your decision to write that article? The one about therapy? Yeah. It's actually a friend of yours, um, uh, Kay He. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was on the Rad Awakenings podcast, and we were talking about gender dynamics, and I was talking about how being the mom to one and now a second little boy, um, I think the world is very difficult for women and men in different ways. And the men in our world right now have been conditioned to not be allowed to have or express or talk about their feelings or emotions. And it breaks my heart. Uh, um, the, the power dynamic is not the same, of course, right? Like, women are subject to so many awful things in a completely different realm and way, but everyone is affected by what's going on. And so we were talking about, like, how, what do you do? How, like, how do you, how do you even know that therapy is a thing? Because with friends of mine, I talk openly about it, but for a lot of people, it's like, there's still stigma, and why would I go to therapy? And therapy is for, you said this, right? Like, yeah, actually, I remember you quoted me without <laughs> quoting me, and I wouldn't have minded if you did. You said, you know, in our culture, at least growing up Indian, the, the stigma was therapy is for crazy people. Right, and there's just this, like, I don't, there's nothing wrong with me, or there's nothing wrong with me enough. And uh, the reason I really wanted to write that article was because I, I don't, like, I think the opportunity of a lifetime is to, to get to know yourself and to like we only have this body and this mind so one of my life philosophies is like make yourself the best place you can to be because this is all you have right there's no escaping it we could try like we can drink our faces off although I'm not currently doing that pregnancy um, and 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 so like the opportunity to have somebody look at you from the outside and say wow for the last 12 weeks, you have told me you're tired. Why do you think that keeps happening? Like, why do you think that keeps coming up? And to start to see the patterns. Or, you know, every time I talk to you, you, um, you avoid the question. You talk about what other people feel, but you talk about what you feel. Why do you think that's happening? The ability to have that level of conversation, I don't think it's indulgent at all. I think it's, it's like mind-blowingly, you're just, it just shocks you into awareness. And then I go home, and of course, I then tell my husband all of the things I learned in therapy and we have like therapy round two um, unless it's a really hard one and then we go home and we just kind of look at each other and we're like I have to go get a bag of gummy bears <laughs> that's how I'm coping with this today um, but I like A I think it's a huge privilege I think it should be readily available to all of us I think a lot of conversations aren't very interesting, and I think this is a much more interesting conversation to have, and I'd rather we go there, um, even with our friends. Uh, and, yeah, does that answer your question? Does that yeah, start well, to answer the question? I think this starts to answer a question, and, of yeah. course, naturally, it, it leads to a, a ton more questions. So I think that as a culture, we pay attention to this issue 
only when it's publicized in very high profile ways when you get an Anthony Bourdain or a Kate Spade situation. Yeah. But in a recent conversation with Frank Warren, the founder of Post Secret, he told me there are thousands that we never hear about that occur daily. Yes. How do we get to a point where we destigmatize it and how do we raise awareness of this issue so that it doesn't take something like a founder suicide or a celebrity suicide for us to say, okay, we have a real problem here? Because it shouldn't take that as a culture in my mind for us to be empathetic about this and to actually start to pay attention to it. Hmm. When you start to look at problems like these, I think it's important to look at complex systems and look at symptoms, things that are happening, people killing themselves, and then look at um, the winding path of where we think the root causes are. And I don't know if we can solve problems of anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts by addressing or destigmatizing therapy. I don't even know if I believe that therapy will solve this. I think therapy is helpful and useful, and I advocate for it because I think it's worth breaking down the stigma. But I think we have a, a community and an isolation problem. Like I think, and if you if we really go down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, which I'm happy to entertain all of us with, I actually think things like the nuclear family are um, problematic. We've taken and isolated into little tiny units these independent chunks of two parents, two kids, and we've put them in completely separate households, and we've made work very far away from where they live, and then we've made childcare far away from where work is. And so all you have are these little tiny, very lonely robots where you can't possibly sustain vibrancy in a one-on-one -on -one relationship. So the relationships are failing, and the divorce rate is skyrocketing, and then everyone's, anybody that commutes for more than 40 minutes is unhappy but they're commuting twice because you have to drop off your kid and then you have to get to work and lie to everybody about having children because if you're a woman and you have children, you're, of course you don't want to work. Of course, right? Wrong. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. And then you have to go back and go back and it's just... It's just my hippie commune self again, but I also think it's not that off. I think we desperately need to be in community and companionship with other people in a way that's messy and lets people see the inside of you. And when I eat 10 donuts at Dunkin' Donuts because I'm crying because I didn't get the job that I wanted or the, I did a bad job with a client, I go home and I tell, like, I'm, it's not hidden in a room buried under television. And like, I think that's what's missing. It's funny, you know, it, it makes me remember a conversation I had uh, on an unmistakable creative with a friend of yours, Courtney Martin, who wrote yeah. a book about this, where uh, if you haven't read that book, by the way, it's phenomenal. The New Better Off. Yeah, The New Better Off. And she writes about co-housing, and she talks specifically about this very issue yeah. and the fact that if you're a teenager, the one person you don't want to talk to about something uncomfortable is your parent, but having somebody else's parents that you can go and tell something to is apparently incredibly therapeutic for them. Yeah. You do want adults as yeah. a teenager, but you need, you also, there's this like, you have to reject your, your yeah. parent. I think it's part of the growth trajectory. You have to separate identif your identity from them in some way, which I'm really not looking forward to. <laughs> it's my own 14 year old being like, you suck, mama. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thanks. Uh, but yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. 
Well, I think that you know you brought up community, and this is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Obviously, I wrote an entire section um, on other people and the role that they play. A big part of why I wanted to do this was because I was getting really tired of sitting by behind a microphone, not interacting with anybody. I wanted to actually be around people, and. I wonder, I mean, you know, we were talking about technology earlier. What role do you think technology has played in isolating us and connecting us at the same time in this way? And do you think it's just making us live this way and making it worse? It's never black or white. Like, so a lot of the problems we have today are, were the same 100 or 200 or 400 years ago, just with different um, instruments. And... I, I was recently brought to my attention that more white people complain about social media being bad than any other race because it's been net good for a lot of marginalized communities who need it as a connection device and are finally getting their voices heard. And, and so it's a, it's a complex issue. Um, It's like, it's like, it's like bread for me. Like, if I eat bread in the morning, I'm screwed. Because then I want a bread basket for lunch, and then I have like a double stuffed pizza at dinner. And then, I, like, over an accumulation of days, I feel like crap. Um, but I love bread. Bread is delicious. But I need to go about my day where I don't have bread until dinner time. And lately, my relationship with social media and technology has been similar. And I have in implemented a whole host of uh, regimens and blockers. It takes like four. I've had my husband shut the Wi-Fi down on my computer only. Um, I use Newsfeed Eradicator for Facebook. I have the Freedom app. I have the Moment or Checky app. Would it moment, I think it's called, on the phone. So I get a lot of data and accumulation because I am fighting against myself because it's never just 30 minutes on social media. If I start, it's four hours. This may also be my personality, but if I start, it's more. But there's a sweet spot in the 30 to 45 minute range where I get more from it than not going on at all. And so I really struggle, just this is personally, I really struggle with how to moderate that because it's so addictive and it's so dicey. And so I try to just reset the day every day like the Truman Show. And I'm only just starting this this summer again after emerging out of parenting, in parenting, newborn, that area stuff. And I'm trying to relearn how to have solitude in the morning and then enjoy happy hour from four to five on social media. Yeah, so we're talking about connection, and I remember it, this stood out in our last conversation, and I, I regretted not asking you about this in this last conversation. I was like, damn, how did I miss that? I remember this very distinctly, because I went back and listened to it since I knew we were going to have this conversation, and since we're talking about connection, you said that you counted the number of words that you and Alex shared back and forth. You said 100,000 words were written, and I never forgot that. Yes. Was there a moment when you said, okay, yeah, I know this is the guy, and I'm going to move? He's in the audience. I know. Right now? Okay. That's why I'm asking. I just that part of that conversation was like, wow. I liked him right away. What, oh, here's another thing. Were yes. they written letters or was it all electronic? We tried to do the writing thing by mail, but it was kind of slow. So then we also went to email, and we had one starred email that went back and forth for a year, <laughs> and we had some letters that were like some icing on top. Um, 
but there, there are actually two email threads for a while, which my husband at the time was a book designer. So he ended up turning this into a, a bound book. But wow. the architecture of figuring out how to orchestrate email threads, because there's like one conversation that's happening and time's going by, and then there's other conversations that are happening and time goes by, was a, a, a geeky design challenge. Alex and I uh, met and spent a year writing letters back and forth before we started dating, is the story I should have told before this. <laughs> um, uh, was there a moment? I mean, I, we were introduced because I needed a book designer for a corporate job um, that I was working at, and uh, our mutual friend Amber Ray was like, oh, you connect. And by the instantaneity of email, we were on the same email thread. And ostensibly, it was a client consulting call, and I really liked the sound of his voice. And um, we giggled, and I told him at the end, I was like, we, I would so be friends with you in real life. Uh, <laughs> I said something like that at the end of the call. And um, I think I friended you on Facebook, as one does, in 2010 or 2011 or whenever it was. And, um, but I lived in San Francisco, and he lived in New York City. And to me, I love traveling, and I dated a lot of people long distance, and I was like, let's try this out. Like, this will be fun. And I think in Alex's mind, he was like, well, she lives in a different city, so we don't date. And, um, but he wrote to me three weeks later and said, hey, I didn't know this at the time. He read my entire blog. <laughs> so he read three or 400 essays and then um, was sitting there waiting for me to publish another piece and got tired of waiting for me and emailed me and said, hey, I really like the way you write. Do you want to be pen pals? And I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> I was like, I would love that. Um, and so we wrote back and forth, and I had a mighty crush on him. And he, uh, in maybe letter seven or eight, like, was like, I went on a date with a woman in Brooklyn, and this is what we did, and like really set it on the friend track. And I, you know, crushed in San Francisco. Was I was like, oh, this is not what I thought it was, and put it out of my mind. Like, reoriented myself and said, okay, this is just an interesting person. You know, I should go date people in my own city. And then we wrote back and forth as friends for about a year. Wow, 100,000 words rewriting every day? No. Uh, I mean, you like read it immediately when it comes in your email inbox, and then you're like, at cool, at cool. <laughs> like, wait two or three days, compose, 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 like edit three days later, delete half of what I wrote. Yeah, no. Um, we tried to have like a three or four day cadence, and then there were some periods where three or four weeks would go by because one of us would get busy. Well, yeah. Now I'm glad I asked the question. I knew a good story would come from that. <laughs> Well, let's do this. I want to turn it to the audience for questions, um, sure. and then we will wrap things up. So uh, we have mics at the front of the room. We don't have handhelds that we can pass around. So in order for the mic to pick you up, can you guys come up to the front and ask your question? Hi. Hi. I know you. I know you. Uh, speaking of Amber Ray. She just also published a book called Choose Wonder Over Worry. Can you give an example from your book related to your creative process, echoing that sentiment, 
And you. <laughs> Can you give an example uh, in your life and what you're creating of that as well? Yeah. I miss sunshine positivity. I'm forcing you there. <laughs> well. I guess I can go first. I mean, I, I think it's a really fitting question given the, the message of audience of one being this idea of reclaiming creativity for its own sake because I think one of the unfortunate byproducts of uh, what technology has done in our culture is the fact that we've artificially created uh, this sense of status and uh, a sort of pecking order in which you're basically ranked and categorized and quantified based entirely on how many followers you have, how many friends you have. Your life is constantly being quantified and as a result I think we've started to experience a deep level of dissatisfaction with our creative efforts simply because they don't reach some sort of arbitrary number or expectation. Uh, but when you look throughout history, what you start to find is that the people who paradoxically reached millions of people completely ignored that. Uh, so I think that you know it, it's, it's a really fitting question, uh, particularly because I actually, just a week ago, I was having a conversation with my agent, freaked out about the fact that not enough sales had come in yet. And I, and I remember thinking to myself, well, this is the entire message of the book. I need this message more than anybody right now. Uh, so I think that absolutely it's, it, when you're able to let go of that outcome, you do get to choose wonder over worry in a lot of ways. Now I need to interview you for an hour. And I think it's working. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think the best times in my life, where is Leah? There you are. I think the best times in my life have mostly come from the attitude of like, let's try it and see what happens. Like, let's try it. And then most of the worry has come from the obsessiveness of thinking about like what might happen or putting too much importance on things and not, and from realizing that like it's just a whole shit show <laughs> like a bunch of data that we go out and we just try it and if it didn't work okay try something else yeah I mean I'll I'll add first times I, one of the first Sorry. times I met her she had just finished what swimming the San Francisco Bay naked yeah you were just trying to find I'll add one other thing to that I think the thing that often tends to be the biggest source of our anxiety is the fact that we focus on a lot of things that we have absolutely no control over yes. whereas you could take that same energy and say okay what are the things that I do control and put all that same energy into that. And what's amazing is you're much more likely to get the result you're seeking that way too. That's one of the things I like a lot about your book is this idea of like goals, not necessarily, like my goal is to have a bestseller. You can't control that, but you can have a goal that's I want to write every day a thousand words. And like process-oriented goals are so much more effective. Like yeah. did I do the thing I said I was going to do? Congrats, Srini. Thanks a lot. Book. Very exciting. And thank you for having Sarah. It's really cool, actually, to hear a whole conversation about parenting and love all your hippie philosophies. <laughs> Sarah, I also love the work you're doing at Startup Pregnant, as I tell you often over email. <laughs> a lot of, especially first-time moms I talk to say, wow, having a child has made me so much more efficient at my business, that the way they go about business and even their day or their week or yeah. their year completely changes, and I'm curious to hear how you've ninjified your systems in the time since you've had Leo. Yeah, oh, I love that. Jenny and I went to high school together. Yeah, we did. Fun fact. <laughs> Fun Palo fact. Alto. Throwback. <laughs> um, 
and it's been really fun to watch you online forever, <laughs> forever. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think it's interesting because, like, you know how people talk about constraints actually paradoxically create a lot more freedom? Like motherhood for me in a lot of ways is like a giant bullshit detector. <laughs> and you have a boss that's like, get these done by Friday. And you're like, why? Like, nope. You know, in your head, maybe not out loud, but you're just like, this is dumb. Um, or you just kind of re-see the, the, the stuff in front of you and you're like, why am I spending all this? I don't have that time anymore. Um, and so yes, and I would say it can be really brutal. Like the experience of transformation, the experience of going through, like I used to be somebody that could stay up, I'll say late in air quotes because that was like 11 or 12 p.m. was my late, I'm, I've always been a morning person. I don't have any of that anymore. Like I have to be done by four or five and that's it. I had a Diet Coke at four so I could do this event and I will probably be recovering tomorrow. Like it's just a different route, especially being pregnant. I'll put my feet up and be like, let Rick hit me. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but like having that forced deadline every day really does say, okay, if I can only get this one thing done. Or like having a child where you're like, I don't know if they're gonna wake up from nap. Like it's, I gotta write this thing. <laughs> you know? like this client project isn't getting done unless they do it. It does, I think it makes you a little more badass. Yeah. Love it. Thank you. I'll also, while I have the mic, give props to Alex for being the co-founder of Leo and the new little. <laughs> Founder of Leo. <laughs> we should talk about equity distribution. Because <laughs> I, I had a longer vesting term. <laughs> so nice to meet you in person to be here. Uh, I haven't read the book yet, an audience of one. But um, not that you ascribe to this, but the idea of making it. Mm. If you're producing for yourself, at what point personally have you told yourself when what's the definition of making it when have you made it do you have you made it at what point will you have said okay like now I've made it and then what uh, I mean I'm sure you're gonna keep on creating and, and for me and the rest of us I hope you do but for both of you uh, what's that making it that is uh, it's such a, a great and incredibly fitting question to answer it very bluntly never uh, to be honest, I will say that I did have this perception that there would be this moment when I felt like, okay, you know what? I have finally made it. And there's a reason that this actually doesn't work. And I'll explain the social science behind it. Uh, fortunately, I've gotten a world-class education from bank robbers and drug dealers and performance psychologists. So I've gotten to understand the science behind this. So there was a time when I used to think that the moment I got a book deal, I would feel as if I had made it. And then it happened. And for about two weeks, I was on cloud nine. And then everything went back to normal. And fortunately, I, I finally understood why, um, thanks to Sasha Hines, who is a, a psychologist who unfortunately couldn't be here today. She's in New York as well. So what happens when we experience some sort of accolade or achievement is what's known as hedonic adaptation, right? So when you didn't have a book deal, your entire reference group, at least for me, was other people who didn't have book deals. Then you get the contract signed. Now you're whole new, you have a whole new reference group, which is other published authors. And the goalpost for what success looks like suddenly changes. Now it's like, well, whatever. I got a book deal, but this guy sold 200,000 copies of his book. That's the new standard by which I should measure my life. 
Now, let's say that happens. I roll through my Facebook newsfeed. It's like, well, this guy just sold a startup for $25 million. Who cares how many copies of my book sold? So the goalpost keeps changing, which is, I actually wrote a piece of, about this on Medium said, saying, you know, why accomplishing your goals won't lead to lasting happiness. Because ultimately, the, the idea of making it is a perpetual search for something external to solve an internal problem, which is a bottomless pit. So that's my experience with it. Mm. Mm. <laughs> well, you when I'm surfing. This, yeah. You talked about this in your interview uh, about the book, um, about happiness versus satisfaction. Yeah. And can you... Yeah. So, um, you know, my friend Matt Monroe and I did an interview uh, on Unmistakable Creative. I think it aired on Monday. And he had asked, you know, what's the difference between happiness and satisfaction? Happiness, I think, is one of those things that we chase, and we're under a lot of pressure to be happy. I mean, your entire Instagram feed is full of motivational quotes and you know, like things that encourage you to be happy. And meanwhile, it's also pissing you off because you see this endless parade of other people's accomplishments or people having a really good time on vacation while you're stuck at home. Uh, satisfaction, I think, is completely different because it's something that you can sustain. And in my mind, satisfaction comes from being proud of the work that you've done, um, honoring the commitments that you've made to yourself. In my mind, if I sat down and I did my work today, it was a good day. If I got a surf session in, it's an even better day. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I love that. I think, I think chasing happiness is such a risky endeavor because I think it's so ephemeral. It's like trying to find euphoria forever and can be really challenging. But like finding things that really satisfy you is a completely different endeavor. Making it... I have to get back to you on that one. I, 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 I don't. I think it's. I think it's also like intangible. I, to me, the the most satisfied I've been is when I can pursue projects, like when I can keep doing new things. And I think that relates to just being a growing human being and wanting to learn. And like, I just took Leo for his second swim lesson today, this morning. And, or, well, we did some swim lessons when he was little, but like second of this summer. And he's gone in a week in two lessons from like, what are you doing with that what what? To like jumping off the side without me even being there. And the rate at which he grows is inspirational to me. I think we're all, we all have that potential. We've just kind of smothered it out of us. So I'll make one other comment on the making it thing. I think that when you're commercially successful with your creative work, the real reward is the fact that you get to keep doing it. That ultimately is the reward. Like, because the the carrot that you think you've achieved, that's temporary, right? You might write a, a best-selling book and you're on the list or in the spotlight for a moment. But for the two days that somebody spends reading a book, an author spends two years writing it. And so the fact that you get to keep doing that thing is really, in my mind, that's making it. Hmm. Oh, she. Oh. I'll run it over to you. Can you hear me? Um, nice to see you again, Srini. Likewise. Um, I love that you're two, both of you are talking, and you both bring up water. I know you love to swim. You love it. You've loved it forever. You love to surf. What is the connection between this love for water and the water-based activity? Just what do you want to say? Well, I'm so glad you asked that because I was literally thinking to myself, "Damn it, I forgot the water question." Yeah, like, so. does it relate to your creativity, to your process, to your life in general? You learn so many lessons from it, like. 
talk about that connection. I'll let you go first. Oh, on this one. I was going to have you go first. <laughs> I think like everybody's somatic bodily experience is different. Like we all have different levels of how we relate to the world, so I can't speak for everyone. In yoga philosophy, in Ayurveda, um, they have different typologies of, of your constitution, how you are. And it, it's like earth, air, wind, fire um, in English terms. But it's like, do you, are you really heady? Do you have like ideas that swirl off and go up into the sky? Um, are you really grounded and like um, need a lot to get out of bed in the morning? That's not me. I wake up like in a panic and I go. My husband is like, get me the coffee. We're going to need some coffee to start this day. And like if I have coffee, I'm like off the rails. So the, the, your constitution, I think, influences a lot of what sings to you or calls to you from the environment. But water, for me, feels like I'm finally being held. Like, like if, if, you know, the ever-expanding universe, I kind of feel like my energy is constantly going out. And so when I get into a body of water, I feel like I finally have some sort of container, and it lets me marinate and think and be at peace. So for me, and, and that's a vata typology from yoga, um, but you can, a windy, if you will, a windy typology. So... That's what it does for me. It just makes me feel slightly more, slightly less insane, slightly more sane. I'll, I'll echo the, the slightly less insane sentiment. I mean, for me, uh, it started with one wave. I, so I used to have really bad stomach problems. And I remember the first time I got out of the water having surfed and caught a lot of waves, I was like, wow, I feel this incredible lightness. But I remember, I'll never forget this comment. I asked an old uh, surfer once, I was like, why is this so addictive? And he said, because it's kind of like an orgasm. You spend a lot of time trying to get it. It doesn't last very long. And it feels really good when you do. It's like, well, that's a pretty solid case for getting out and doing this thing every day. <laughs> uh, it, it's funny because I, I see the exercise as just a convenient fringe benefit, but I think, I, I remember Sarah saying the thing about the container last time I talked to her and it made all the sense in the world because I, I think for me, water teaches me how to be present. Uh, I don't think I'm as present in other areas of my life and as a result of, of that presence, What's interesting is I think then you basically get to let go of all sorts of logical and linear thought patterns. And I mean, I wrote an entire book about this, which was the previous book. Uh, that has been my go-to source. And I, I've echoed this sentiment as well in a couple of interviews. I don't think it's a coincidence that my writing journey and my surfing journey are parallel almost to the day. Yeah. I want to add something that you're reminding me of. I sometimes feel like my systems are running at different speeds. So like my mind might be like, like full throttle and my body feels really sluggish and when the more dissonance there is between my mind and my body and my spirit the harder it is for me to sync up and get into flow and so when I go swimming I feel like it slows my mind down and it speeds my body up and then when they're on the same plane we can have, like we being all of the voices in my head we can have much more interesting conversations and that's when I feel like I get my best ideas every time I go swimming I get out of the water and I'm like that's the next essay and it's I wasn't thinking about it what I was doing in the water was counting <laughs> you know it's a very meditative thing and I like obsessively counting of like I'm gonna do a thousand yards and then I'm gonna do it this way and I have these have to be backstroke and then I get out of the pool and I'm like oh why I want to hire all new mothers okay that's my next article like it just it just does something awesome yeah I mean I, I would say the same thing I think you brought up flow which is uh, really I 
uh, once you, I think, have a dose of that, there's no going away from it. For me, it was like the gateway drug to every other action sport. And my parents denied me a skateboard as a kid, so that's the you know Freudian thing. <laughs> so now it's like every anything that involves a board in, under my feet and high speeds, I'm interested in. Hmm. There's someone else that had. Oh, there you are. Hi. Does it work? You just yeah. got new batteries. Okay. Serene, so I wonder in creating this new book, what was your biggest personal discovery or surprise during the process? Well, I mean, I think the, the fact that you ended the, the question with the word process was probably the biggest one. Uh, I think somebody asked me the other day on Instagram or somewhere else, how does it feel to be done? And I said, to be honest, it kind of sucks um, because I would much rather be right in the middle of it. Like, that is what I think this book taught me is that I do this because I get a great deal of pleasure from just the act of doing it. Uh, it'll be something I will do for the rest of my life. It's pretty much, I mean, I've, I've done it for so long now when I wake up in the morning that if I have kids and I'm married and I have to wake up at four in the morning to do it, that's probably what I'll do. Granted, I'm totally full of shit because I don't have any kids, so <laughs> take that with a grain of salt. Um, I haven't experienced what Sarah has, so it sounds really, you know, optimistic to say that, but... Um, it's close to what we do. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think that was one of the really, really big things that surprised me was that, wow, I, I really genuinely enjoy this. I think the other thing that has happened, uh, particularly with the podcast, this is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about because we're kind of an anomaly in the world of podcasts in that we started a long, lot longer, lot long before many people did. We've grown slower and we're smaller. Uh, and that has been something that I've had to get my head around and, and you know, at moments ask why, but what it also has forced me to do is look at the things I could control and it's made me, rather than thinking about growth of the audience, focus entirely on how do I become world-class as an interviewer. Um, and then how do I focus on mastering my craft? And that, I think, has been really one of the big lessons from writing this book for me. Nice. Yeah, your questions are... I always, I always come to our interviews with questions I want to ask you, and then I get lost because you keep asking these amazing questions, and then I have to go back and listen because I'm like, what did he do? Yeah. Jedi mind tricks. Jedi mind tricks. Yeah, you learn from the people you interview. You, can I ask you a question? Yeah. I think that's allowed, right? Um, what have you learned about interviewing over the course of having this podcast for so long? Like, what would you teach other people? Funny you ask. I actually just finished writing something about this. So um, we could do an entire podcast on that subject. So I'll, I'll kind of give you a few criteria. So one of the things that I think people do wrong, and this is why anytime you send me somebody, I say yes, I think the biggest mistake that we make is to look solely for people who are famous or have some sort of massive audience. And as a result, we miss out on a lot of interesting stories. Um, people who have stories that are worth telling and that could make a huge difference in the world. So that's one thing. I mean, I think the thing that we're pretty known for is just the sheer diversity of people that we showcase. And that has always been by design. Uh, the other thing I think that people really don't get is that it, some, sometimes people wonder how do you come up with these questions and uh, the, the answer is these are the things I'm genuinely curious about. They're the things that I want to know about and I think that often people don't follow their natural curiosity and as a result they end up having these very stilted conversations that don't sound uh, 
organic. They don't sound... The, the funny thing is that this is a conversation that you and I could be just sitting having in a coffee shop and it probably wouldn't be very much different. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that I've always aimed for. The other is, I think that there are two things. One, I want to paint every single person that I interview in a positive light and showcase the best parts of them that I can. Like None of the questions I ask, even though I ask very deep and personal questions, are ever designed to make somebody look bad. Um, and I think because of that, I can get people to open up and share things with me that they wouldn't necessarily share with other people. Uh, then the final one I say, this is, like I said, this is a rabbit hole that we could go down yeah. for hours, but this is something that I've learned, um, that I've paid attention to, and I've noticed in every interview. So human beings by nature can't stand silence. It's incredibly uncomfortable for people to deal with silence, even if it's like five seconds. Uh, Robert Greene actually writes about this in The 48 Laws of Power. Um, and this is not about the 48 Laws of Power, but what I realized was that in that brief pause, if you will just wait a moment, that will be the most riveting dialogue that you'll get in an entire interview, and that's how you end up making animated shorts out of podcasts. <laughs> I need to now listen to the moment before that. I, you know, it's funny. I haven't even listened to the interview, but I remember thinking, wow, this could have been a commercial for the Moleskine Notebook. <laughs> Mine's right back there. Yeah, yeah. I, I had to pick a new one up this morning. Yeah. So. Hmm. Any other final questions? Yeah. Um, you mention uh, process, you talk about sort of freedom through limitation, I'm talking about you, Sarah, and also you. Um, and just, I'm curious, because you mentioned yoga, I know that it's something that you've practiced. I'm wondering how has your practice of yoga given you a sense of freedom in, uh, you know, just having more constraints and sort of hard things to do in the morning. Mm. Um, and how does it relate to writing? Because they seem, maybe not at odds, but certainly, you know, time you're spending doing sweating things you can't do. Right? Writing things. Yeah. So yeah, I'm curious how these things connect for you, and I'd love to hear how this shows up in your life. Yeah. Two things come to mind. The first is that when I moved to New York City to see about a guy, and I'm pointing at my husband. Um, I, well, we had been dating and uh, agreed that living in the same city would be a good thing to continue dating. And I, I, in that first year, I signed up for yoga teacher training. I stumbled by a studio um, in downtown Dumbo. And I was doing my own freelance thing and I was moving across the country, so I had extra time. And I think it's one of the things that profoundly changed like, how I feel about myself. Um, and Alex said, Alex is my husband, if I haven't mentioned his name yet. He said, um, I changed in doing yoga teacher training uh, in a good way. <laughs> but I just, like my freneticness, my um, spazziness, the, like, the constant want to do, 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 slowed down a little bit. The other thing that comes to mind, and I think I'm like, I'm not quite answer, I'm answering your question with different stories. Um, the other thing that comes to mind is that the transition into parenting has broken it all apart for me, where 90 minutes of time used to be 
just colloquial, like every day. It's like, oh, 90 minutes? Of course I'll go to a studio class. Um, my time is, uh, there are 10 minute patches of time all over the place, um, but they don't always stack nicely next to each other and add up to 90 minutes. So having a yoga mat at home when it's dark and it's cold and it's hard to get to a pool or going for a run outside is hard or it's 3 a.m. and you're like, I don't know if I want to run at 3 a.m. as a lady. I'll just not do that. Um, I can get up out of the bed, go to the living room and get on the yoga mat and do 10 minutes of practice and calm myself down again. Or if I'm in the middle of a sticky writing problem, I can do these little pieces. Those are the two things that come to mind. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> but it's been the practice of a lifetime. Like, and it, it's ongoing. Like, how do you relate to your mind and yourself and slow down and reacquaint? I don't think I'm anywhere near mastering it, but I do feel like I've been given keys to things that people have known for a long time really, really work. Journaling, writing, morning pages, yoga, um, and I'm doing my best to learn from them. It sounds like your writing is as much of your practice of discovering yourself as stretching. Yeah. It's all connected. I think if you can write for long enough to get out of your own headiness, you can actually start to construct things, for me at least, that I'm not quite certain what they mean. And then as a reader of my own work later, when I go back and I look at the words on the page, I have a secondary relationship to it because I'm, I'm now understanding the words that I, I wasn't quite sure of before. And I'm looking at it and I get to see it again. And sometimes I get the experience of like, like that sounds really smart. Like, it's really cool. Like, I get to go look at my past self and be like, Thank you for writing that down, right? And then other times you go back and you're like, nope, no idea what you're trying to say there. Like, absolutely none. But there's, uh, I don't know, there's so much interesting stuff in our bodies and our minds. And like, put it out somewhere and look at it. It's really cool to do. Yeah. Like the videos you make. They're great. <laughs> awesome. Well. I want to finish, um, and we'll obviously hang up, sign books, and, and chat. I want to get to actually talk to all of you. Um, but I want to finish with my final question, which this is going to be the third time I asked you this. Yeah. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Today, what comes to mind is we were chatting about this actually at the front with a bunch of people. Um, unmistakable is an idea that maybe we apply to other people. Right, it's a judgment, it's a value. Am I saying that you're unmistakable or is it, like, is it something that's in you? And if we are taking the stance that it is something applied or given to somebody else, then the onus is on the person who is doing the viewing to find the thing that is unmistakable. So I think being generous and uh, it is your job to ask the right questions and find the interesting thing in the person in front of you. Um, and if you haven't found it yet, it doesn't mean it's not there. Well, I think that makes a really beautiful end uh, to a very poetic and uh, interesting conversation. And to all of you, thank you all for coming out tonight. This has been really a treat, and I'm excited to be able to hang out and chat with you after we're done. Thank you, Sereni. Yeah.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.